0: Hey, and welcome back to Speak About the Spark, brought to you by CreateSchool.ie. Every fortnight in this podcast, we talk to somebody from the field of creative arts, gaining an insight into their process, and find out what sparks their creativity. If you'd like to get in touch with suggestions and thoughts, please find us at Create School on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or email us at info.createschool.ie. For links to the guests and their work or anything else mentioned in this series, go to createschool.ie forward slash spark. My name is Justin and in this week's episode I interview Peter Murphy. Peter Murphy is a a freelance journalist for Hot Press Magazine. He's a spoken word artist, he's a musician, he's a novelist. Uh, Peter talks to us about his creative process, coming unstuck, and what it's like to teach writing. He also talks about how it's important to have a morning routine and how physical exercise is great for creativity. I really enjoyed sitting down with Peter. Hope you enjoy it too. Peter Murphy, welcome.
1: Um, Good to be here.
0: Can you tell us a bit about yourself, who you are? And...
1: Um, I'm a mongrel creature who uh, who has lived several different uh, existences. Um, mostly I'm a writer. Uh, I've written two novels, um, working on a book of short stories at the moment. Um, for many years I was a journalist. I started off as a drummer uh, in a band with institution that is McEgan, um, in the late 80s so I wrote I always wrote I was obsessed with comics when I was a kid and that was kind of my in into into reading I came from a, a family of readers my mother and father were, were kind of obsessive readers of books and newspapers so I always wrote um, for school when I was when it was basically a job of work you were given to do essays or whatever but the the first kind of obsessional reading was horror stories supernatural stuff Mm. comics 2018 star lord sci-fi um genre stuff mainly stephen king was the first obsessive reading that i did i read pretty much everything he wrote in the first half of the 80s as it came out but um music was always there alongside it um my mother threw out the television when i was about eight. so the only options left were to sort of creep into the crypt of the Big Brother's room and 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 uh, look at these strange alien beings on the cover of the records. Um, so that that and the radio, um, radio Luxembourg and kind of indiscriminate listening, um, nighttime radio particularly at the time, in the late seventies was a sort of banana republic where anything went, whether it was Dave Fanning Show or John Peel or. Anything after dark, you could hear anything being played. It yes. wasn't as strictly controlled as it is now. Uh, so well, around about when I was 16, I just had this awful urge to play. I sort of taught myself the, the drums on a on a sort of hardback book, two rulers in it, and it, my mother's sewing machine pedal. Uh, and just played along to records I was kind of self thought I was I was always a mediocre drummer I was never particularly gifted but I liked playing the songs you rather than the drums at all? occasionally yeah. yeah i have been playing a little bit of recording recently we'll come to that in a minute but um but i went from that to, then i played in bands for about 9 years uh loads of different bands moved up to dublin in 91 played in about three or four bands up there um a band called the Tulips, a band called Grasshopper. We released a couple of singles, um, and uh, but then you know the necessities of paying the rent a um, uh, bit hard, and I figured I didn't want to be a kitchen porter for the rest of my life, so I just started submitting reviews to magazines and papers. Got a little bit of freelance work, and then I started sending reviews to Hot Press and the more stuff I sent them, the more they used. Uh, and and over the period of about uh, a year, a year and a half, I just became one of their regular contributors. Right. So I was with them for about 15 years. We're about 10 years in, I started to get this itch that I, I uh, the, the fidelity to the facts of journalism. And in many cases, you're kind of prescribed what to, ri- what to write about. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of freedom in hot press in those days. You could propose, you know, Look, Lydia Lunch has a record out. You know she's fascinating. Can I talk to her? Yeah. And Lee Mackey, who was my editor at the time, was always kind of open and would say, "Yeah." It was sort of like one for us and one for them. They'd be like, "Yeah, you can have this, but um, you got to go interview some junior minister uh, in the morning." Yeah. Yeah. That was great in terms of like life experience. And I never went to college, so it was a, it was a proper education. Yeah. And just in terms of being a little more uh, assured of myself, in terms of the the range of people I could talk to, it took away a lot of shyness or or uh, insecurity or whatever okay. uh, through the through the lens of the job. I learned how to talk to to different okay. kinds of people. And what kind
0: of the, what, what, who did you interview?
1: For? It would be everyone. Like it would go everything from kind of FW De clerk, the ex president of South Africa to Lou Reed to PJ Harvey, to Sonic Youth, then loads of writers, wow. William Gibson, the sci-fi, the cyberpunk grandfather, James Elroy, the crime kingpin, um, and a lot of nonfiction writers. Yeah. Um, and, and then a lot of media people, you know, broadcasters, uh, you know, Donald name John Kelly, yeah, all those yeah. guys. So it was a sort of three hundred and sixty degree um, education.
0: And you find that these these people you spoke to they've influenced like your your maybe your approach or your output?
1: It would, yeah. Well, it was such a privileged position to be in to yeah. actually sit in a room with people and just have a license to pick their brains. Yeah. You know, the sort of thing you'd usually get arrested for in a bar. I like, what well, I'm doing now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> podcasting podcasting is interesting because it's very similar to what we used to do, which was the long-form interview. Yeah. You know, there was a time when if somebody gave us interview time and it was under 45 minutes, we'd say, forget it. Yeah. You know, you're only just... Uh, you're only just drinking your coffee and breaking the surface at that point um it was interesting towards you know around about 2010 2011 you'd start to get um these dictates handed down from the record company you know you've got 12 minutes on the phone with some guy from pearl jam and you'd yeah. be like what am i supposed to do with that <laughs> it was economic so they couldn't afford to do press tours anymore or they could afford it but you know a lot of people couldn't afford to be going on press junkets yeah. that were extremely expensive flying people across from the States or up from from Spain or wherever it was. But um, but yeah, it all fed back into, I mean, I still remember conversations I had with particular people. I still remember lines that certain people have said to me, uh, you know, whether it be Vim Vendors, the film director, or Bruce Robinson, who yeah. wrote with Neil and I, you know, larger than my characters. Uh, but it, it kind of, uh, and and sustain some friendships out of it as well. Um, you know, without dropping names or anything, but people like James Dean Bradfield from the Manic Street Preachers, yeah. when the first book came out, you know, he we had an interest in exchange because I picked up the phone to interview him for uh, a journal for Lovers, that album. And he said, look, I don't care if you hit, hit the record, but I really like your book, <laughs> <laughs> which is nice. And, you know, people like Butch Vig or... Surely from Garbage well, so I, I, I wouldn't be like in yeah. constant contact but we'd be yeah. we're at a strange place now where it's like I've known them for 20 years yeah. there's no kind of strangeness there wow. um, so and they're fascinating just in terms of basic kind of work practices you know Did
0: I hear you saw um, a copy of uh, one of
1: your books in a, in a, in a film? In, uh, yeah it was in the was in one of the extra D V D extras for for Nick Cave's film Twenty Thousand Days on Earth. Oh, that's a great movie. Yeah. 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 Uh, which is an amazing movie about, about creativity. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um and work practices and therapeutic stuff.
0: Yeah. It's rare you get to see uh, somebody actually in that, that process of yeah. making music in their home it
1: was, yeah you know. it was an and it was an interesting film because a lot of the scenes were kind of staged and yeah. yet they were real at the same yeah, time
0: yeah i love that uh part where he's he's driving and he's got different people in the back in the of the, back of the car yeah. Amazing, yeah kylie and blix and yeah. bargles and ray <laughs> winston
1: like who else would know such, <laughs> yeah. such a realm of yeah. acquaintances but um yeah i was just looking at the there was, there was a, a sort of extra on the DVD or something, I was watching it one day, and it was about the sort of how they kind of constructed a simulacrum of his office on a set, yeah. and they were looking at, the set designer was talking about the things that he, he picked from the actual office and wanted yeah. to, and there was a pile of books there, and I was sort of like, oh, I wonder what, what's on the next desk in yeah. there at the bottom of the pile with John the Revelator. That's brilliant. <laughs> well Wow. <laughs>
0: So, That's been a great, a good feeling.
1: I'd like to see that. Anyway. Well, I knew he had it. Sinead Gleason told me that yeah. that she'd given him a copy of it a few years later, and uh, and she met him. Uh, she met him later on, and she and she, my name came up, and uh, she said, "Did you did you ever read that?" And he said does that begin with a storm and she said yeah he said yeah i started it but i never got to finish it because warren ellis stole it <laughs> and then he passed it on to thomas weidler and it was basically right, going around yeah. the bad seeds <laughs> i don't think nick ever read it
0: <laughs> so um all these different uh all these different uh, projects that you've written for like journalism you do uh you write spoken words yeah uh, the performance is the the most that's the most latest sort of aspect of it how long are you doing that then
1: about seven or eight years I'd say
0: that's that's
1: really young well it 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 came I always had an itch to do it but I never knew how is this supposed to come out I often felt kind of frustrated as a mediocre drummer (laughs) uh, with this urge to kind of communicate to the audience but I wasn't a songwriter uh, or a singer so I didn't have that direct sort of conduit um you know and it would often sometimes frustrate me when the singer in the band wouldn't talk to the audience or make eye contact with them yeah, or, yeah. or actually perform because I always loved as a as a fan and as a punter as in a as a journalist I always really respected when people performed put on a show yeah um a certain amount of theatricality I mean I, I grew up Loving Bowie and Tom Waits and Kate Bush and all these people yeah. uh so that came out of um shortly before the first book was published John the Revelator um Ako from Enniscorthy an old friend of mine who I'd known since we were 14 and 15 um and had played in a couple of bands with he had an open mic night happening in uh the Bailey up in Enniscorthy and Um, I think for the first time I just read a passage from it and afterwards he said I can't remember which one of us said you know shall we record some of this so he just basically came around to my house where I was at the time with a laptop and over the course of the winter we just recorded these readings from the book and he would bring them back to his lair and kind of score them set them to music so we kind of made a record by, by accident we had an album's worth and Um, Jerry Fish at the time was doing a lot of recording of spoken word uh, for a project that I was doing based on Michael Madsen the actor who was in Reservoir Dogs his poetry and Jerry had managed to get people like Willie Nelson and Iggy Pop and some incredible stuff Um, so I knew he was interested in that realm I'd known Jerry through interviews and socially as well so, you know, Jerry came down one day and sat in the car with me and Ako and we played the the whole thing from start to finish and he said, Like lads, this is this is good enough to put it like I'd like to put it out. Um so uh incredibly generously he yeah. he put it out on his on his label. I mean it's highly kind of um I really like it. It reminds me of old radio players yeah, or yeah. something. It's not a perfect record by any means, but uh, but there's a lot of interesting stuff on it, and, and um, uh, but it's a lot less niche now than it was at the yeah, time. Totally. Yeah. Um, so when we, when I, I wrote the second book, shall we gather at the river, myself uh, and Akko and Paula Cox were actually scoring the re- the readings almost as they were being written so that was a much more fully realized kind, kind of, of record. performance type uh, yeah the so the record was called the brotherhood of the flood and the live show just kind of expanded from that okay. yeah. yeah um and that uh that kind of reached i remember the last few gigs we did and i remember really having this feeling of like this thing has kind of gone as far as it can in a, in a really good way in terms yeah. of using backing tapes and a slightly theatrical performance I remember thinking, yeah, this is exactly what I had envisioned building. Um, But that came to to a natural end. And since then, uh, two years ago, I went and uh, poached your guitarist, Dan (laughs) Comerford. Well, I didn't poach him, but I borrowed him. Um, And uh, and as you know, Dan has an incredible sort of range yeah, of styles yeah, yeah. going from sort of orthodox songwriting or collaborating you know great singer yeah. but brilliant with technology but what um and uh and dan had done a little bit of work for paula cox so i remember seeing how adept he was with technology and kind of soundscapes and yeah, stuff beyond yeah. kind of uh songwriting
0: yeah, totally. yeah he's yeah he's uh, good for that He's got a really nice, um just, his his guitar tones and his his way of approaching playing the guitar even is is a uh, it's kind of very expressive, you know. Yeah, um, and intuitive. Yeah, and he loves all the little gadgets as well. Yeah, he's
1: yeah. a total tech geek. Yeah, he is yeah. uh, uh, much like yourself. Um, <laughs> but um, I kind of wanted a stage a first show under the name Cursed Murphy. I wanted a sort of. Uh, a new, a new chapter, uh, I chose the name Cursed Murphy because, uh, if you Google Peter Murphy, you'll find the old kind of goth singer from Bauhaus from the 80s, uh, so to avoid confusion, I figured I'd better, uh, invent a stage name, so Cursed Murphy was born, so since then, it's been, um, on and off me and Dan built a, a set over six weeks uh, and put on a couple of shows and then when I was staging these kind of multidisciplinary events, Cursed Murphy's Laboratory in the Art Centre and the final one um, I asked uh, Rebecca Garnis, um who has like a drum crew who use kind of warlike Brazilian rhythms, they're they're a samba band as well, but they have all these other sides yeah. to their playing uh, that doesn't often get heard in, the, in a sort of a, a parade kind of context. Um, so I had this track, Burn High, Burnie Burn, which I always envisioned as a sort of public enemy type thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I got the crew in uh, Rebecca, Tamara, Yasmin Gagnus and Kevin Dillon. And together with Dan, we just rehearsed one, one piece to do with the laboratory. Uh, but we had a ball and they created an incredible ruckus. So um,
0: It was very thundering. uh, Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it it kind of opened out uh, a side that I'd never been able to investigate because I'm a total sort of primitive punk rock geek as well. Like, you know, the Stooges Funhouse would be one of my favorite records. So it kind of pushed it out of spoken word and allowed me to sort of almost be like a vocalist, but not yeah. really a vocalist yeah. or performer, more sort of, like one of my favorite records is Lou Reed's New York record. And the yeah. whole thing is basically spoken. Yeah. It's basically storytelling caught between the twisted stars, the plotted lines, the faulty map that brought Columbus to New York. Like the register yeah. is not much beyond yeah. that. Yeah. Um, uh, out of the Velvet Underground and stuff and Sonic Youth. And so that kind of gave a scope to open it out into a bigger, bigger thing so that's been the last eight years so we're making a record at the moment yeah yeah
0: you're recording Johnny Fox's yeah Yeah.
1: which is great I mean everybody has other stuff yeah that they do uh um and as do I I've got the writing and I've got other plenty of other stuff on the boil so it's not as claustrophobic as a kind of a band situation where everybody's like really intensely dependent yeah on this one thing it's much more fluid uh, people can come and go or, or drop out I mean we've had a stable lineup, thanks be to God and it's been amazing that everybody's so into it yeah. uh, but there's a kind of security in not being too angst ridden yeah, or uptight yeah. you know and uh, you know Dan obviously is Frankenstein bolts and he's a brilliant songwriter himself yeah. and he's got a ton of stuff that goes on I can do shows on my own did a few shows in sweden last year that were amazing fun trying to carry a whole show on your own with just the voice is quite a challenge or we can do scaled down versions of it for smaller rooms so i like that kind of amorphous
0: yeah yeah and then then writing for writing for the spoken word thing or writing a novel yeah what what's the the difference in your approach there is there you have a, do you sit down set a time aside to do these things or do they kind of, you know, evolve with you over time? Or do you, do you decide, right, I'm going to write a novel now or I'm going to write a poem now, I'm going to write a spoken word piece? So.
1: Pretty much, I mean, I find you get into trouble when you don't know basically what you're doing. Yeah. You know, without being too prescriptive, sometimes stuff, you know, as you know, stuff flies out of the ether and you don't, yeah. you don't know what it is yet. Yeah. As best while it's just not to try and put it in a confirmation suit or anything. Okay, um, yeah. But um, generally, I know like they're, they're different disciplines. Um, discipline being the word. When I'm writing, one of the things that journalism taught me was basically the value of a deadline. And also a certain amount of not necessarily cavalier, but not being too precious about the process. And just showing up, you know, when, when there's 1200 words due in the morning, you just show up yeah. and you do it, you get it done because then the rent doesn't get paid. Yeah. And a certain amount of that, see it uh, as he, uh, uh, um, uh, C.S. Lewis once said that the muse is most likely to come visiting when you're sitting at your desk working. Um, and there seems to be no way around that. I generally have to show up every morning. Yeah and put in a few hours now um, sometimes you might get a good day's work done in an hour and sometimes it's like pushing a boulder up a hill yeah. um, and the, the, the key is knowing when to leave it
0: that's what I was going to ask do, do you think there's a, a stage there that during those few hours that you're pushing the boulder up the hill that you should just walk away from it?
1: sometimes yeah Yeah. Uh,
0: like how much labouring should you do? <laughs> <laughs> like
1: how long is a piece of stream yeah, yeah, you know yeah. I don't know. It's an ongoing bugbear with yeah, me. Yeah. Um, the The deal is, the pact is: show up anyway. Yeah. Show up for, show up for, work on time. Mm. You know, dressed for work. Um, get out of your dressing gown. Um, and uh, there's a great book called "Big Magic" by Elizabeth Gilbert. I'm not a big fan of her her other work, but this is an amazing book about about creativity uh and she says like you dress for work as if you're going on a date yeah because it just means like you're going on a date with the muse so show up you know believing you mean business it's a sort of um uh it's a sort of commitment to the work at hand i always love that about tinder sticks or the bad seeds or or uh uh or bowie yeah you know you look at them On a rehearsal day and, you know, even if they're dressed casually, they just look like they're serious people. You know, they've got a sharp edge to them. They're They're not showing up in Bermudas and a pair of flip flops. Do you
0: know what that book was that you are talking
1: about? Uh, Big Magic. Big Magic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And there's another book, On Writing by Stephen King, is a hugely valuable book, whether you're a fan of his work or not. And I haven't read anything new that he's done in about 20 or 30 years, but... It is one of the most unpretentious, practical books about writing. I'd recommend it to any artist. And there's another book called The Conversations, which is an interview book. The interviews were conducted by Michael Ondaatje, the great Canadian novelist and poet who wrote The English Patient. And the subject of the book is Walter Murch, who's a film editor and sound designer on Apocalypse Now, The Godfather, Mm -hmm. Conversations... English patient, yeah. Cole Mountain. He's basically a master. But that is one of the greatest books about creativity I've ever read right. because Merch is just this polymath. He's a genius who will, you know, he'll apply the principles of Italian Renaissance poetry construction to how to cut a scene. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, but an extremely interest, interesting for any musician because the sound design, obviously some of the sounds that he's created are iconic. Like there's a, an amazing passage in it where he talks about the famous segue from um, from Martin Sheen in the in the hotel room and yeah. he's looking at the spinning blades of the fan overhead yeah, into the helicopters. Into the helicopters. Yeah, yeah. That was a complete accidental really? cut. He had two different scenes set up yeah. on the monitor. Almost a eureka moment where he looked from one monitor with the spinning blades of the fan to the other monitor with the spinning blades of the choppers and yeah. just saying, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> to this? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so in terms, yeah, work, uh, you got to show up for work and you got to have structure. Yeah. Structure is key. Um, and
0: a deadline is important. And a yeah. deadline.
1: Yeah. If only, ta- if only arbitrary. Yeah. You know, you can always blow a deadline, yeah. you know. Uh, and this is one thing I suppose we should talk about getting stuck. Yeah. Um, you can take, you can take uh, your work regime to kind of neurotic lengths, um, and if you find that you're leaning on it as a human being, but not for the work, it can get, uh, it can get into troji territory. And get mm-hmm. tedious. I showed up in the in the library. I used to go into the library here in Wexford every morning as soon as it opened and i would stay there till four in the afternoon uh and there was a period around about 2014 2015 where i literally was kind of overloaded with ideas and did not know what i was doing mm. i keep starting what i thought were novels and it transpired they were not novels uh and by process of elimination i discovered i was writing a book of short stories yeah which I was kind of resistant to because publishers hate them and it's kind of career suicide yeah. but that sense of ungratefulness I think was a real lesson because it generated nothing only angst uh, and counter productivity you
0: think you can have too many ideas uh, I think you can yeah yeah, yeah. it's uh, almost as crippling as having no ideas at all you
1: know like my my only antidote for that is keep a big book yeah Put the ideas in him uh And the ideas will stay fresh if you just put down the paragraph, whatever it is, even just a general outline, but pick one and stick to it and finish it.
0: And do you you find that with with books of ideas that you do go and revisit them when you need something to work at or you're always working on something that's fresh in your mind?
1: Generally, I think once the act of putting them down in the book keeps them in the head okay. and they're generally intuitively they'll come back to you yeah. at the right time when you're ready for them okay um i have literally written the same passage over the space of 15 years thinking i was writing a new idea every time only yeah. to realize i've written an identical one <laughs> you know a long time ago yeah, yeah, yeah. but um in many ways i think the subjects people choose are recurring obsessions in their life. They're almost almost like riddles that that can't be solved. And you kind of pray that you never solve them because then you'll kill it, stone dead. You know, if you do a perfect work of art, it's dead. There it is. (laughs) That idea is (laughs) done. You have a little funeral for it. Uh, But one of the things, if it gets difficult, I mean, everybody goes through periods where they're, they're, where they're dry or just bereft of ideas and it's a weird balance like you shouldn't give up on work just because it's hard mm. but at the same time you need to know when to stop banging your head off the wall I mean Einstein famously described madness as uh, repeating the same activity and expecting different results <laughs> so, um, and I recognise that feeling it's a sort of fatigue not unlike a sort of spiritual hangover yeah. and a lot of sighing and a lot of moaning and yeah. a lot of complaining and a lot of uh, a big one big kind of clench. Um, it's the opposite of freedom. It's the opposite of being fluid.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: So I generally find during those periods I'm not reading enough. Okay. I'm not listening to enough music. I'm not watching enough movies. Yeah. I'm not going to enough plays. You have to let the bucket fill up.
0: That that's yeah. I, I was just gonna ask about uh, is is there? Do you know why people? Do you have any idea why people get stuck? But I find that myself. It's because uh, I'm not doing enough um, listening and reading and watching. Um, and eventually, it does clear. You know, it comes yeah. back around. And when it does, it's a <laughs> it's a good feeling. You know. Um, oh,
1: it's like you know the, the first day you get a gusher yeah. <laughs> after, <laughs> yeah, after yeah, the drought it. yeah. it's like oh yeah. thank god i thought <laughs> i was dead
0: <laughs> and it's as well i will what i find with, with, with a dry spell and sometimes dry spells can last a long time you know it can last months and for me anyway um, sometimes years yeah years yeah i've
1: gotten work yeah. over a period of years <laughs> that's worth keeping but it's yeah. not it's not fluid.
0: Totally. And even when I listen back to songs I've written, um, I know uh, the songs that I was putting out while I was going through these spells of, uh, you know, kind of being stuck, I suppose. Yeah. Know? Um But I, I think uh the one thing that gets me is when a dry spell does come along, I think to myself, oh no, is this it? Yeah. Was the last song I wrote that I liked, the last song I'm ever going to write, you yeah. know? Yeah um so you know it's it's nice to hear that uh yeah it, it is only a temporary thing you know and it is to do with, with your, you what you're doing at the time or what you're kind of you know i suppose putting in you know um.
1: one i think one useful trick is to use reverse psychology and on, on it and go okay uh forget it then okay yeah. i don't have to do this you know yeah. there's a danger in defining yourself as a musician or a writer yeah. define yourself by any activities yeah. kind of is a bit uh dodgy because it stops you from growing you know where you're like i'm an actor i don't write you know um but if you flip it i think and you go okay say it is done okay go find something else to do yeah or or try and actively suppress it then every time you get up to you have the compulsion to go and write something say oh no stop it yeah don't do it and and eventually, I think the creative resistance to that doing nothing becomes so uh, great that it actually becomes kind of inspiring. I once to ask Neil Gaiman, who's incredibly prolific. He's just like a a wellspring of stories yeah. from you know graphic novels from Sandman through to Caroline to American Gods. To he never seems to question what he does. Yeah. Um, and I asked him once, you know how is that you seem incredibly um unquestioning of your own abilities and i said oh i get it the same as everyone else but he said here's what i do i have a shed or a lodge at the bottom of the garden, or he did at the time i spoke to him and he said i go in there and i allow myself the option of doing nothing or writing and he said after about uh, 20 minutes the only thing that makes writing look good is being forced to do nothing (laughs) (laughs) so there's that aspect Uh, but also to remove the ego from it a little bit, Mm. the act of listening to other people's music or watching their movies or reading um, is a form of connecting you to a wider wellspring of ideas Mm. it makes you at once humbler and more nourished I think and um I remember hearing Keith Richards once say that he always considers that he doesn't write the songs or the music that there's just this universal radio out there that's yeah. broadcasting and he's just figuring out how to tune into yeah. it or just tuning into it without even trying and he said and Keith for all his sort of you know father of uh, jack sparrow sort of dissolution i think is is pretty wise in terms of creativity he's a phenomenal guitar player i love to hear him talk about um particularly old blues recordings he's very eloquent on it but i thought that was a quite a sane and sophisticated idea that it bypasses the ego so it's not coming out of you yeah, you know yeah. therefore it's not a reflection on you yeah, yeah so you can't take the credit for it nor yeah. will you take the disgrace for it if it yeah. stinks <laughs> you know looking at it, yeah. it just rem- it removes you from the equation and you just view yourself as a conduit
0: I just wanted to ask you as well then about technology do you use anything to record your um, ideas on or is it all pen to paper kind of recording
1: it's kind of the fourth wall that i have to break through is to i know from looking at uh, Dan at work looking at Ian Doyle at work, or um, Killian and Lorcan from Baskerville, how adept they've become. Um, it's long overdue that I actually become more adept with technology than I am. I've always had a bit of a block about it, I managed to get away without having to uh, to learn the basics of uh, it. Johnny Fox is another genius with that. I mean, he built his own studio. Um, Johnny, who's sort of recording. Co producing and engineering the record that we're working on at the moment. Um, our writing is kind of anti technological by nature. Um, and I often tell students that, you know, turn off the Wi Fi, it's kryptonite. Yeah. Uh, and you cannot be in a, the same room as the internet. It's kind of like. It's kind of like you're, you're lying on a bed and there's a succubus sitting on your chest, yeah. sucking the breath out of you. Yeah. Like it is extremely difficult to focus. And it's quite interesting, I think, what's happened to the human brain over the last 10 or 15 years. As in, the, you know, everybody talks about the reduced attention span. And, uh, now, I don't think there's any return to the days of the 600-page Victorian novel that takes eight pages to describe somebody's fireplace. Uh, But at the same time, both the act of reading and and writing and any form of creativity requires focus and calm. Um, I always think of it as sort of like going down in a diving belt, um, an old-fashioned one where it takes like an hour to suit up. And then you got to spend like 20 minutes getting lowered in. And if somebody starts pulling on the rope while you're down there, you get pulled out of it you're going to have to start all over again it's kind of like that yeah
0: yeah, that's that's a good
1: analogy so I try and keep the keep the technology away I you know I'm actually regressing in terms of technology for writing I used to um I started writing on an electric typewriter, I think in the 90s Uh, and then as in terms of uh uh practicality when email came in the idea that you could email your copy into the office you know rather than trudging into town with a floppy disk giving it to the typesetter (laughs) this is miraculous you know your productivity and then when you'd be going away on junkets and you know going to interview metallica in berlin or something the idea that you could bring your laptop with you transcribe the interview when you got back to the hotel clean it up and maybe file the feature the next morning as you're waiting in the airport was uh, it was unbelievable of course the downside of that now is people are never off duty yeah, yeah. um so that one kind of can backfire and bite you in the butt
0: when when ideas come to you then if you're if you're just out and about in the day do you have some way of getting them down or do you just keep that in your analogue baby it's the notebook yeah, yeah. you the notebook it's yeah. the notebook
1: yeah. um always paper there's something and there's something about the act of your own handwriting
0: totally yeah that, Physical, uh, yeah.
1: yeah um and so then when you when you type it up you've already gone into another draft and that's different yeah
0: the editing uh, i suppose options on software and i, I am I, I do use say my if my phone or something comes in i use the, the voice recorder on my phone you know? yeah um but i don't use the phone to type down you know write down lyrics and things like that yeah i find the editing options are just I'm constantly deleting the same set of words over and over, you know, trying to do everything in the first draft, I suppose. Yeah. And once it's down on, I don't have pencils with erasers on top of them or anything like that. Yeah. You know, and then later on you get into, you're right. Once you get home, then you try to write, you know, you write it out again.
1: I think this is a really important point Yeah. actually, which is, um, I think one of the reasons it it takes me a a few years to write a novel usually. And I think it comes out of, having learned to write with a word processing program. And it's my life's work to try and wean my way back to a handwritten first draft. What that forces you to do is write the first draft, you know, uh, the old screenwriting adage, uh, write the first draft and then learn to forgive yourself. Um, It's, uh, write it in all its lumpy warts and all, uh, flawed you know overwritten underwritten glory but get the first draft down Mm -hmm. before engaging the monkey brain Mm -hmm. the monkey brain will basically talk you out of anything the monkey brain is just this idiot drooling jeering big brother back of the class smart aleck who you know I always hear him in a broad Wexford accent going who do you think you are come (laughs) on what are you doing you know go and get a job and what's, <laughs> what's wrong with you you and you, owen colfer once said you know the most devastating thing he ever heard was well maybe not devastating but the most typically wex-40 thing he ever heard was uh walking down the main street one day and hearing a voice from a doorway going there goes your man with his books <laughs> <laughs> there's an element to that that's the monkey voice um and a lot of my uh when i've given classes in creative writing is is to say and this comes up in elizabeth gilbert's book like he's kind of like your your father-in-law or or annoying cousin who, who like you're going on holiday right he has to come with you yeah. you're gonna to have to figure out how to integrate him into the structure but he or she sits in the back basically while you're driving telling you you're going too fast or too slow or you missed a turn off or whatever Mm. and you have to turn around and go look buddy, you can stay in the car Okay, you're (laughs) part of the family I get it, you're coming with us but you're not driving (laughs) (laughs) so so let him have his way like on the second or third draft and a little bit of that voice is good sometimes a lot of that voice is good you can't be too in love with your own work but it has no place in the first draft because you can't edit and write at the same time. You'll end up with nothing.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, yeah, Chris, the monkey brain. The monkey brain, yeah. yeah. yeah we'll watch out for him. I know, I know him. He, oh. he lives in my house as well. Uh, and it's not just us. It's, yeah. you, know,
1: uh, you know, carpenters have it when yeah, they're yeah. making a table, you know.
0: Yeah, it's that self-critic, uh, that self-doubt, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. No. Um, so... You were saying earlier on... I just have a couple more questions for you guys. Um, you, you were saying earlier on that you, you write in the morning time. Yeah. yeah. So you, you, you get out of your dressing gown and you show up for work.
1: Where possible, yeah. I what, try and write for a couple hours and then exercise and then go back in.
0: Okay. And is, do you think do even the exercising, is that... Is Crucial. That, yeah? It was a life changer for me. Yeah. yeah.
1: I didn't exercise. And I trained a bit when I was younger because yeah. I came from a boxing family. and It was a local boxing club and... Um, they're not dissimilar, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I often suggest to writing students that they think of it less like, uh, like alchemy or or, or creating a Michelangelo' work of art, more like training. Yeah. Uh, but both metaphorically and actually, the act of I got back into just basic exercise, going for the odd run or or, or cardio stuff or whatever around about in my mid-40s. I have this personal theory that a lot of what people think is a midlife crisis is actually a drop in testosterone Mm -hmm. Uh, for uh, men, estrogen for women. uh, uh, It may affect women differently physically, but I believe psychologically we all go through the same bottleneck around about the same time. It may be to do with uh, reproductive faculties in both sexes, but You actually lose, I think, 1% to 2% of testosterone every year from the age of 24 or 5. And it's very easily remedied. Like, it's cold showers, full fat, butter, uh, or exercise. Um, But I think a lot of people get kind of tired and a bit despairing and a bit kind of mentally and physically out of shape at that time. Um, And for me, it was a sense of kind of just getting a bit leaner mentally, a bit tougher and the sense of this thing that you don't want to do but you have to do it yeah. uh, and you know it's good for you it's a bit like a very fish wifey voice saying you know I don't care if you want to do it or not you're doing it because you're going to feel better afterwards yeah. and almost a bit the same way in the work is like redefining pleasure is when the pain stops <laughs> <You
0: know? laughs> and, and so you work out in between your writing, I, just, yeah? oh,
1: I generally get up for a bit I try to get up early yeah. Um, in the summertime, I find it easier to be up around six. Yeah. Um, I need to, I need about a, a, a 45 minutes of not talking to anybody yeah. and drinking coffee, or generally just, um, you know, some people meditate at that hour or they write freehand in a journal, sort of clearing, throat clearing, morning pages, they call yeah, it in the, the pages way the pages, yeah. Um, uh. For me, I just sort of sit around and brood for about an hour. Then I'll go and 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 take a look at what I'm working on. Might work for an hour, an hour and a half.
0: Yeah.
1: Get up, exercise, eat breakfast, and then go back in yeah. for another you know, three or four hours or whatever I'm doing.
0: As I do find out, like anything that I've ever kind of released, like um, has has been written um, early in the morning, six o'clock, kind of get up at six. But i'm the opposite, I find it a lot easier to wake up at that time in the winter. Right. I like to sit in the dark because it's getting brighter in the summer and I don't know when I'm when it's bright I kind of I find it easier to come out of that dream state that you know that just woke up sort of state yeah. where I like to, to write a lot of the time maybe, yeah. or you know um, so I think the winter for me getting up early it's harder obviously to get out of bed in the cold but um, once you're up I find it's still dark it's still I still haven't had any emails or anything text messages coming yeah. through any distractions like that and um just a pot of coffee then sit there you know and, and write till it's till it's bright you
1: know it's a kind of a holy time yeah. all right really you feel say. like you're safe you're in exile from the world yeah stuff hasn't started to coming in at you yet yeah. the first John the Revelator was written very early in the morning over a period of about two or three years because the the girls my three daughters were um they were I think Grace was the youngest at the time, so she would have been about five or so, up to, up to early teenage years, and uh, and they were of school game going age, so there was you know loads of stuff flying around, yeah. um, and I had the day job of journalism, deadlines that would not be uh, disobeyed. Yeah. So I can remember vividly. I think it was shortly after my father died. It was that first intimation of time is not elastic. You know, there's an end, yeah. uh, and and I wouldn't call it a panic, but it was more the sense of I would wake up at about four or half four, going, yeah. "What are you doing? Like, you're gonna write about other people for the rest of your life, yeah. or, or you know, if if you got to do something, you got to go now, go now." And I had this sense of urgency for a couple of years, so I would get up. Um, on a good morning, I get up at about half four. Um, and now some mornings I'd be typing with my nose, like you know, <laughs> just passed out. But, uh, but most days the innings were good Four out of four out of six days. I get stuff done for before they woke up at about half seven or eight. Um, so, and I think that book has a sort of slightly dissociative dream state yeah. kind of thing going on with the narrator. He's not really attached to the world. Um, so there's that liminal state where I'm sure Freud and Jung had had loads of stuff on this, where you're kind of still co- covered in amniotic goop. You're just kind of, yeah. you're not really real yet, and and stuff can come through. I think as as, as no doubt you've discovered that wouldn't otherwise come through. You're not really yeah. in self censorship. That's
0: exactly yeah. You're not censoring yourself. At that yeah. Time. You're, too, you're too tired to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Um, just last night I, I watched a, a live. Uh, facebook stream of, of you performing yeah um, and uh, the piece that i, I saw you do um uh, was was you kind of talking to a politician or a minister yeah right i love the line in it about you know how, how am i supposed to afford an ipad so my kid can do the junior search yeah you know? um but then i know something like uh, another piece uh, foxhole prayer yeah um, what I found, in those, just in those two pieces even, foxhole prayer is a bit of a, kind of a metaphor for different, for like you list a lot of different things that are a foxhole prayer. Yeah, um, it could have gone on for days.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> but the one I heard last night, to me, didn't have a lot of things like metaphors, it was a very straight and the yeah. bone type uh, uh, piece. Do you... Do you think, like, is there a bravery in in writing that way and being very straight to the point? Is it is it a, you know, is that something that you've learned over the years or is that, does that come from maybe your journalism, something that you can be kind of honest and straight in your face that way about a topic or is that something that you kind of think, right, well, this piece is going to be this way?
1: It took me a long time to to get to that place. Okay. Uh, And, um it came out of I'd say and it's an ongoing process. It came out of a series of concussions of um it came out of like the first one would have been my father's death. Mm-hmm. The second one would have been uh the end of my first marriage. Then my mother um had uh dementia for several years. Uh, then my second marriage imploded and it seemed to, and then my brother died this year. It doesn't always have to be, it, I don't think it always has to be necessarily a a trauma, but I think those comets, when they hit your earth, they're uh, shocking and painful, but they also bring with it some form of release. Yeah. And for me, I think it's just been a gradual process of, not caring anymore. These events do chip away at that. Yeah. Thing, yeah. yeah. There's no... It's chipping away at the facade that you want to present yeah. to the world. And uh, and I found that my experience of, of each successive um, kind of life event, stuff that everybody goes through or, or will go through, um, I noticed how people responded was always shocked me as to how decent people were Mm -hmm. and how supportive they were Mm -hmm. and how that a lot of the inner critic that I had in my head was of my own devising and could and sometimes reaches the level of self-sabotage or whatever and I noticed with a lot of writers someone like Leonard Cohen who was the king of it just uh At a certain point, just became weary of abstraction or symbolism and, and was just like, here's what I have to say. Yeah, yeah. You know, unvarnished. Mm-hmm. Here's what it is. Um, uh, a friend of mine, Rob Doyle, he's a writer. He, he called it, he was talking about this the Norwegian writer, Carlo uh, Nausgaard, who has written these incredibly kind of revealing books about his own life. Yeah and Rob calls it the taking one for the team syndrome (laughs) it's like you're going to say something incredibly you know it doesn't make you look good but everybody's going to feel it and everybody's going to go oh I know what he's talking about (laughs) it's like like, so a certain aspect of like of if you're if you reach a level not saying I'm there at all but certain people like Dylan or Leonard Cohen or um Kate Bush or whomever or uh, certain writers like Flannery O'Connor would have reached a level of not caring or going so beyond the ego that they'll take one for the team. Mm -hmm. At its worst, that becomes self-indulgent, you know, soul bearing, you know, journaling. Mm -hmm. That's not art. That's, that's self-indulgence. So it's a tricky one. You have to know at what point, what you have to say, your experience is universal. Yeah and at what point you should like keep that one in the notebook mm-hmm. yeah
0: that's that's cool um so you just mentioned students earlier on there and I just was gonna just say that you, you we were just talking before this you're, you were um the uh, you were up the in the right Carlo. residence in Carlo yeah, yeah that's right and you do you do one on one yeah um so how much of this c- creative writing can be taught how can how much do you think can it can it all be taught can it
1: it's a good question um my thoughts are that like if you're not if you don't have a natural facility with ideas and language you know nobody else can give it to you they can't creative writing itself can't be taught but the act of attending a creative writing module can give you structure it can give you a boot camp sergeant, or a or a or a therapist, whichever you prefer, <laughs> to report to. It can give you deadlines. It can make you feel less alone. Uh, it can teach you certain techniques. You can you can certainly teach technique. Um, you can't put the raw spirit into someone, but you can maybe teach them how to shape it or or help them avoid certain pitfalls. You know, if I see somebody's going down a rabbit hole with a, a certain diversion from their work that, that might be leading them to a a bad place or leading them off track, you can kind of, you can read it and advise them and gently nudge them or at least interrogate them on what they're doing. In some cases, you know, I've attended um, screenwriting classes. I was part of a writer's group when I was writing John the Revelator, which was unbelievable actually it was the difference between me sitting in a attic writing uh and getting bogged down over and over again and actually having a small audience all of whom were writers themselves who were in the same hole as you were who were basically kind but smart and and the kind of people who would tell you that your zipper was down it's
0: a supportive thing as well yeah because writing can be quite a lonely um I suppose, existence, you know? It's, yeah. It's definitely something, you know, the majority of the time you do it on your own, you know? Um, yeah. But I even found out with the the open mic thing I was running for a couple of years, you know, regardless of your experience, there was a writing challenge handed out every week, yeah. And everyone went in with the on the same, like it, nobody went in with it well rehearsed or anything like that, regardless yeah. of your experience. You know, people never wrote before, we're getting up in the same boat as somebody that was been writing for years, and, yeah. but it was always a new piece, so it was never kind of known how it was going to go down, yep. you know. Yeah. I really enjoyed that, and I got a lot of songs out of that uh, process, you know, and that support, I suppose, you know.
1: Well, the veteran feels maybe just even more under the, under the cosh in that yeah. environment, because yeah. they have no excuse for churning out, you know, of course they have every excuse, but you know, the expectations yeah. of them are higher, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. everybody's first draft is a first draft, yeah, man. nobody gets exactly. away a <laughs> yeah, exactly. but, um, yeah I mean like I find cues they're fun but they're also good Good. I have certain techniques that I yeah. give people which are just basically mechanical cues yeah. you know empty out your pockets and write me a story about something you found in Excellent. Yeah. Uh, um, which comes from a great story called The Things They Carry" by Tim O'Brien who basically describes everyone in his unit in Vietnam according to the things that they put in their backpacks mm-hmm. so the guy who's a little more afraid of dying would carry more morphine uh, a guy who yeah. didn't give a damn would carry comic books. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, somebody carry an extra, you know, wad of weed, and somebody else would carry letters from his girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, so that that's an amazing kind of exercise in character building through through objects. Yeah. So I love giving, and and I learn. You know, like, let's be under no illusions. anytime I'm given a class, I'm listening to myself speaking, going physician heal thyself you know (laughs) go take some of your own boys' advice buddy you know that that thing you said about 3x structure you're not really sticking to it are you
0: (laughs) but even like when i got home evenings from doing workshops with grade school it's like you know why why am i not writing at the moment like why why am i able to write this song at the moment i just spent the whole day writing three or four songs with other people yeah you know you you need to start taking bringing those things home a little bit and you know Take your own advice on your own, you know, and try and put them into
1: practice. I kind of like working for other people. I always like commissions. I mean, those, a lot of the, I've been writing a lot separately from the short stories. I've been writing separate pieces for performance Mm. or for recording. So, um, we've been on and off in the studio for a couple of months making this album Mm. and the very act of having to show up, you know, uh, having a, and, and generally what happens is like it's kind of songwriting in reverse. I'd go in with a with a page of words and a and a rhythm idea and I'd throw down the words first and then maybe throw down some drums or, or a loop or something. Mm. Uh, and then um Dan might come along later and kind of actually supply the tonal stuff the chords. Yeah. He actually colour in the music mm-hmm. in between these outlines. But the act of having it, knowing you're going to have to show up on Monday morning Mm. with, uh, with these words tidied up is, is, is brilliant. But also, I mean, I was writing a a sort of a prose poem, autobiographical prose poem, which I'd never done before. Um, and I was struggling to find the structure for it. It's so, it's basically a life story and the thing was too bloody big and unwieldy. Mm. But, um. Uh, A writer called Catherine Dunn approached me uh, with this idea structured around tarot cards. Uh, The idea being that she would assign a story to each card to different writers. Uh, But whether it gets used in that context or not, what it gave me was all all of a sudden I started thinking of the span of a life through each card. Mm. Uh, So it gave me a structure to hang each piece on. Then all of a sudden the thing tidies itself up and, Mm. you know. Uh, And gives you an unusual structure. So, like, you know, as you know, with songwriting, there's limited notes on a scale. Um, There's, uh, I think, you know, drummers are are the great unsung arrangers of the world because literally they have to grid, or if you're programming it yourself, you have to grid what you're doing. Uh, So by nature, it's going to put structure on it which is not to, you know I love um, Ornette Coleman as much as the next yeah. guy <laughs> <laughs> but at certain hours of the day and uh,
0: when, when can we listen, when I look forward to hearing your album then,
1: the album uh, we are almost finished recording so we're going to take our time to mix it over the summer we'll probably put out a couple of tracks yeah. first over the autumn and maybe early next year mm. we're looking at the album release as you know making the record is easy scheduling it manufacturing yeah, it all that stuff. sorting out pr yeah. and i was never pr was never my strong suit in the past but i'm kind of proud of what we're doing at the moment and i want to give it its its best shot yeah. Yeah. um now you know, the, the music industry or the arts in general being what they are today you have to kind of have realistic expectations yeah. but at the same time i wanted to to uh It's been proven that when we perform in front of people, there's an audience for it. It's actually quite accessible. So I want to give it its best shot in terms of finding its own audience. So probably early next year, I would say, and then hoping to have the short stories. They're being redrafted at the moment. They're going out to first readers, which is something I'd recommend anybody. If you're not still in a writer's group to have one or two readers whose taste you trust, and depend on it's great yeah yeah the first the first listener I'm sure you have it with demos or whatever Is like who's the first person you play to outside the band
0: um I suppose I would I would send it to a couple of people I send a lot of my music to McEgan right um with folks actually I often met them uh even though I I used to think that showing it to family members was a you were never going to get an honest uh you know because of their their kind of uh I suppose their their biased uh, opinion of you as a person, you know. Well, they but, say
1: there's a reason why you shouldn't learn how to drive from yeah. your family member. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, but I find I find that over the years they've come to know what I what I want in terms of a, of a response when I send these things. Yeah. Well, Mick Egan, obviously Dan um, Dan is probably the first person that gets this um, because I kind of know then from Dan whether it's maybe something that he thinks he would be interested in doing within the Frankenstein Bolts uh, lineup. That that you know could we arrange it for our band that way or or would this be just something that I would keep for myself and, yeah but uh, Dan is always a good guy to, to send things to you know
1: I find Dan's uh, response is, is actually very simple like yeah. there's no judgement yeah. he either responds to it musically yeah. <laughs> or he doesn't yeah. yeah and generally if he responds to it you'll have something in three hours yeah. Um, Otherwise it's like uh, And he has said to me on occasion Yeah, don't think I've got it for this Um, But it would never be a case If I don't think this is any good Or it's not for me Or it's not my kind of thing It's either there's an idea generated by it or not Which is kind of the same with a reader uh, The gesture I always remember from the studios He would reach for a bass Not a guitar He reaches for a bass (laughs) He just plucks the bass off the wall And starts (laughs) fooling around Next thing you know you're recording it
0: so we, we have an album and a book of short stories to look forward to. Yeah?
1: That's, the, that's the immediate, those are the immediate projects and they are very immediate. They're Excellent. consuming pretty much all the oxygen. And
0: would you mind if we played a song at the end of this episode? Not, a, uh, yeah, from, not from maybe you're new, but maybe something from the past if you're new. Sure. I'm, actually, I know this is not going out for an hour, But you were saying, you won't have the album till, till next year. So maybe something from the past.
1: Um, we could use Foxhole Prayer. There's a couple of tracks off of, um, I still... Um, off the record I do kind of you know the Revelator orchestra kind of imploded mm. it couldn't go on yeah. but it did kind of implode suddenly but it meant that it kind of sucked the wind, the headwind out of that record that yeah. we made there's a lot of really there's a lot of stuff I can still listen to on that record mm. that's about my best way of saying I'm proud of it but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot yeah. of stuff I can listen to without well, flinching on it yeah um, we could include there's, yeah, there's a track called Isaac Miller that, okay. um, that we do live still, um, that, uh, but I can send it to you. Or or you'll find it on, I think, it's on all iTunes and stuff. Uh, but yeah, shout me when you're when you're putting the the tracks on, and I'll see what we've got. Okay. Peter Murphy, thank you very much. My pleasure.
0: Peter Murphy there. Um, Great pleasure for me to sit down and talk to Peter about writing. Um, You can tell that he's always writing, thinking about writing, and he's so interested in it. And, uh, yeah, I just really enjoyed the afternoon. Um, Check out Cursed Murphy versus The Resistance. Catch them live. They're amazing. And uh, keep an eye out for Peter's book of uh, short stories. That's all for this week. Give us a shout on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and YouTube or email us at infocreateschool.ie if you have any suggestions or thoughts on the series. Um, We're going to leave you now with a track from Cursed Murphy versus the Resistance called Foxhole Prayer. See you next time.
2: seven beers here comes the fear a nightmare woke me i was scared i talked to god god was not there saint peter hear this foxhole prayer outside my door sounds like a war they're hacking up the tarmac shuddering the bars give me one more beer before the wars declared. sweet jesus hear this foxhole prayer sweet jesus hear this foxhole prayer I know no fear nor loss of heart nor dark despair we will endure we'll get to this this foxhole prayer says I exist this foxhole prayer says I am sick of the sadness and the madness and all this apocalyptic shit how sweet the sand that saved this wretch how sweet the sand that saved this wretch I swear it was a foxhole The Simon Lamentation is a foxhole prayer. The toilet wall scrawl is a foxhole prayer. Rambo Baudelaire foxhole prayers. Parliament Funkadelic foxhole prayer. Nina singing Sinnerman foxhole prayer. 100,000